one of the, the big picture reasons why we've, we're seeing these retreats into populism, retreats into identity politics and nationalism, is precisely because the sort of yeasty diversity and variety of civil society is eroding. Hi, you're listening to the Keeping It Civil podcast, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I'm going to be interviewing speakers that our school brings to campus. The point of our speaker series and of the podcasts is to host a civil exchange of divergent views on important political, civic, and social issues in American life. The series invites both liberal, progressive, and conservative voices, which we feel are important for the advancement of civic and liberal education today. Today's episode will continue with part two of my interview with Jonah Goldberg, originally recorded in mid-September. If you missed part one, make sure to download it first. Otherwise, I'm sure you're going to be kind of confused. I hope you enjoy it. So uh, I'm going to start sort of 30,000 feet. Feel free to interrupt me Mm -hmm. if I go off on tangents, which has been known to happen. Tribalism is this big popular buzzword these days. I use it Mm -hmm. in the subtitle of my book. I think it it, it fits because of our understanding of where we come from, even though like we actually evolved in bands and troops, not tribes, but people get the connotation of tribe. Mm -hmm. The real word from evolutionary psychology that explains much more, has much more explanatory power, is the coalition instinct. We have a whole series of subroutines and apps in our brains Mm -hmm. that make us want to form coalitions even within our own tribes, right? It's the this idea that allies are incredibly useful. We are hardwired for nepotism. There's never been a society in, in, in all of human history where people didn't show favoritism towards family and kin mm. or friends. That is just established. Uh, the history of civilization in large part is the history of trying to fight back these subroutines of our human nature. It's part of our nature. It is it, just part of our in nature. Terms of your, yeah. We form coalitions, right? Mm. So aristocracies are one of the very first forms of, I would argue, identity politics. And the very first forms of manifestations of a new form of the coalition instinct in a new environment, right? So originally, aristocracy only meant rule of the best. But very quickly, aristocrats, nobility, invented the concept of noble birth, that certain bloodlines were simply better than other people, right? And so for the first, and it happens in China, it happens in Greece, it happens in Rome, this idea that simply by accident of birth, some people are just better than other people. That's identity politics, where you you ascribe yourself to a category rather than be judged on your own merit. So even though a drooling idiot uh, son of an earl is dumber than the average serf, he is born of noble blood and he's better. And so my point is, it's, mm-hmm. that's not just identity politics. It's also trade unions, guilds, academia, tenure, <laughs> uh, universities are full of people who, um, you know, and this is something I get a lot from Schumpeter, but who use the tools that they have to promote their own self-interest against other coalitions. And one of the great disasters, I think, in America was not that the new left types got, or the conflict school types got into academia, but that they were allowed to completely take over academia and pull up the drawbridge. I mean, let's go back to that for a minute, because I think it does actually relate to, you know, the argument of your book. It was actually the genuine liberalism, I I think I would argue, and please tell me where you mm-hmm. disagree that allowed for that to happen so I they agree. so so they they said we are open to new viewpoints so when the new left stormed you know um, college dean offices all throughout the late 60s and they demanded certain things and they and then oftentimes they made very specific demands for specific programs right people caved and then they when they came into these departments and they made more demands mm-hmm. and even though the demands kept escalating many of these people for lack of a better phrase we'll call them vital center mm-hmm. liberals they did not see what was coming 
coming. Is, is that, I mean, I think that's that, exactly is that, right. Is that, is that I fair mean, to say? Of course, it's a generalization, but yeah, but, no, I think I mean, it's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. In the, but why haven't they once, when it became obvious what was happening, and I'm not sure when we could chart that, let's say maybe mid 2000s, or mm-hmm. is that too late? Is that too early? I, I don't know. But let's just, for I mean, the you know of, more about higher education than I do. Just, so, just for I the mean, sake of argument, let's, yeah. just, let's just use that as a date. Why is it that they, once they saw that it was happening, there isn't more of a push for genuine intellectual diversity? And isn't that maybe part of how we would get some of the things that you're arguing for in the book, this yeah. genuine gratitude, even if, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, even if I'm use, if I'm teaching a class on the history, intellectual history or political thought, and I don't even agree with your assessment that it's a miracle, mm-hmm. but That's I fine. still, but I still, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I do or I don't. I'm uh, just saying okay, for, exa- okay. exa- yeah. or, uh, for the sake of argument. But regardless, as long as if I'm teaching my class and I present both the consensus school and the conflict school, that would have a better chance of imbuing the students, at least some of them, or maybe even a lot of them, with a sense of gratitude, at least the idea that they're, there's something very unique about their culture mm-hmm. that they should understand before they condemn it. Is this something that we can rebuild? I hear you talk I, about many different things in the book. I, but I, I think, well, look, I'm, I, I'm trying to do my part in this yeah, regard, right, right. right? You know, and I think Look, it's a very complex phenomenon. You know, part so part of my argument, and I think you're absolutely right that it was the openness of liberalism that invited these people in and left them ill-equipped to know where to draw lines, right? Uh, because it is a natural part of human nature. It's you know, it's the iron mm-hmm. law of oligarchy to use your position and power to to bring in allies and then lock out opponents. And that is a story of institution, all sorts of institutions, right? My former colleague, John O'Sullivan, coined O'Sullivan's Law, which said that any institution that is not expressly conservative becomes liberal over time. And he was talking about things like the Ford Foundation and all the Rockefeller Foundation. O'Sullivan's Law, right? Because what happens is, is that, and so one of the reasons why that phenomenon I think is true and why I think it happens in higher education, but also in in K through 12, is that the people who are actually interested in teaching, for the most Mm. part, are psychologically oriented towards these sort of conflict school narratives. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to towards turn maybe openness and tolerance as their their strongest traits. Or am well, I... no, I just think it's it's sort of it's one of the reasons why you know progressives tend to dominate in professions like journalism and education mm-hmm. and social work is that there is something that appeals to that mindset, mm-hmm. which I think speaks well of them. You know, to a large extent, I'm not trying to criticize anybody, but look, the point I was trying to make is that I have one kid. I can afford a kid to send my kid to private school in Washington because the public schools aren't all that great. So I have school choice. My kid still gets this stuff, gets the Howard Zinn stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Every parent of kids who go to a private school in Washington I know gets all of the sort of the sort of Zinnian history of uh, America. Uh, Let's call it the shadow side of America, yeah, for lack of right. a better word. The, the, the bad news version of everything, <laughs> right? And in higher education, I think of donors are more aggressive, more uh, board members are more aggressive, more assertive. Most of the really rich people I know, um, whether they're liberal or conservative in partisan sense, have a certain amount of gratitude for this country because it helped them get rich. And you see a movement from some conservative donors trying to push back on this kind of stuff. Some of it is ham-fisted. Some of it's very good. It's sort of a case-by-case basis. But one of the problems that – and I was on the board of trustees. I was the young trustee of my college. One of the problems I saw up front was you get CEO types, uh, business – big business types who have a – they're basically on the board of a college because of its 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 status conferring reasons rather than because of a really active interest in higher education. Mm-hmm. And their general instinct is to defer to the professionals. And the professionals right. are the right. administrators and the professors who get – the administrators are allowed to speak to the board. So they get a story about what's going on on campus that may not reflect um, uh, the full picture of what's going on on campus. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's pretty hard to know unless you're there. I mean, it's pretty hard yeah. to understand. I mean, and, and it might even be more specific. It's pretty hard to understand even a department or a field mm-hmm. unless you're there. Higher ed tends to be very specific. No, uh, I agree. And, and, and I'm, I'm not one of these people who wants to demonize all of higher ed. I mean, I mm-hmm. know people who are working in higher ed who I profoundly disagree with, but they actually do teach both sides. The past president of the American Enterprise Institute, this guy, Chris DeMuth, he always put a huge amount of stock in what he called long the, uh, the long bomb uh, scholarship. Because when he was in at the University of Chicago or something as an undergrad, the professor had two reading assignments. One was what you're supposed to believe because it's right. And then the other one was the crazy, nutty, right-wing thing that he was giving you for balance, but also really to show how dumb conservatives are. And Kristen Muth was a, one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. I think the assignment was from, from Tom Sowell. said, I think this is brilliant. I think as long as there's some good faith from college professors, the college professors I got the most out of um, when I was an undergrad, I couldn't figure out what their politics were for years. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think What's happened to that ideal? I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I've had a number of students come up to me and say, you know, I don't know what you think about anything. I said, that's exactly what I want you to. That's exactly the reaction I want. Yeah. But I mean, it seems like that ideal has devolved. I, and, and, and that's my sense of it. How does that relate to what we're talking about, this decline of gratitude for the West? And to tease this out further, doesn't this also not just relate to the rise of identity politics, but as you argue, the rise of populism, which you call a form of identity politics? Yeah. Jan Mueller, I think that's his name, who wrote a book called Populism. He makes that argument, mm-hmm. too. I disagree with his argument. But to get a little too egg here, probably. I'm against monism. There's a great scene in um, the first City Slickers movie where Jack Palance, who plays Curly, right? He tells Billy Crystal, everything in life boils down to one thing. and Nothing else matters. And Crystal says, well, what is it? And he says, you got to figure that out for yourself. Great scene. Total horseshit. Just factually not true, right? The whole point of modernity, the whole point of prosperity comes from the division of labor, the division of meaning, right? The idea that you can have different roles in life. If I dedicated my entire life to just my devotion to my wife, I would be really annoying to my wife. I would not provide for my child. I would not have a fulfilling life. There is no one thing in any aspect of your life that you should give 100% of yourself to. I think that one of the, the big picture reasons why we've, we're seeing these retreats into populism, retreats into identity politics and nationalism, is precisely because the sort of yeasty diversity and variety of civil society is eroding. And a lot of it has to do with the deterioration of organized family, I mean, organized religion, the breakdown of the family. And a lot of it has to do with large economic forces that have caused a lot of America to be hollowed out in terms of having a both a vertical and horizontal economy. And so the problem is, is that we are all hardwired to want meaning. We're all hardwired with what Robert Nisbet calls a quest for community, a sense of belonging. What gives us true happiness and satisfaction in life is to want to be needed and needed by our family families, needed by our friends, needed by our employers, needed by our communities. It's what um, my boss at AI, uh, Arthur Brooks, called earned success. And you can have high, high levels of earned success and hate your job, right? And have a menial uh, toll booth attendant where all you do is boring work, but you have huge amounts of earned success as a soccer coach or as a wife or a mom or a father or a husband, some other little platoon of society. And as uh, I think as a mixture of where we are in terms of 
capitalism, which has huge problems or creates huge discrepancies. Uh, discrepancies. Um, but where we are in terms of our politics, our culture, and our decline in religion, there are fewer opportunities for few people to get a sense of meaning in their lives. And when that happens, when they can't find it close to home or in their home, they start looking elsewhere. We do not lose that hunger. It's like your eyeballs don't stop working. You just cover them up for a little while when you close your eyes, right? Your ears are working 24-7. Our moral sense, our moral desire to belong is there constantly. And when we can't find it in healthy, organic, meaningful, productive places close to home, we start looking to Washington or we start looking to brands and we, start, we retreat to Facebook. And you call this romanticism in all of its different forms. Yeah. But one of the things I found a little interesting in your argument in the book is that this kind of bifurcatedness of our experience in modernity, where religion, society, the family, the workplace, consumption are all treated as separate things. Mm -hmm. They're not treated as one thing, which they used to. They were in the feudal order and, and previous orders probably as well. And because we want to have that unity of order, mm -hmm. we seek a romantic answer. But I guess what I think even many conservatives would argue is that that natural desire to seek unity mm -hmm. says that we need unity. I do mm -hmm. think many conservatives today, not necessarily from the same uh, vein as yourself, would right. make an argument like this. So tell me why you disagree with that. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Um, and towards the end of the book, I said one of the great calamities or challenges that the West faces, and this is another place where I would disagree with Pinker, is that we've lost the concept of being God-fearing. You know, if the old sort of Hallmark card thing about good character being what you do when nobody else is watching, when you believe that God is watching you, it has a tendency to focus your mind towards good behavior. We've now indulged sort of the romantic tide, which values self-expression over self-discipline, right? That's the mm -hmm. inherent tension in the mm -hmm. Enlightenment. So I have no problem. In fact, I would agree entirely with conservatives who say we need that sense of unity. Mm. We need that big picture sense of belonging to something. Where I would where I get off the train, whether it's the Trump train or some other train, is saying that the government in Washington can provide it. Who um, can provide it? Well, so first of all, my understanding is there are only about five, I can never remember the number, it's like five or six things that actually give us happiness in life. You, I can never pronounce the Greek, eudomania, you, you eudomania, eudomania, anyway, it's, it's, not, it's not just sort of giddy joy, right? Mm -hmm. It's deep satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And it's faith, family, experiences, right? Experiences are much more important than things, which is one thing I try to get, tell young people is if you have money to spend buying cool things the, the, the high wears off really quickly mm -hmm. buying cool experiences stays the memories stay with you forever uh, so it's like faith family experiences uh, your genes because some people are just born miserable bastards right mm -hmm. and this earned success thing now part of my argument is that we are not wired to live in a country of 330 million people we're not even wired to live in a community of three million people. There's this thing, Dunbar's number, which mm -hmm. says that we only can know, truly know, about 150 to 200 people. Didn't Plato believe any society over 100,000 was, there was no way to preserve social good? I there's something, any, well, there's also Rousseau, who, yeah. you know, I have big problems with Rousseau, but I think he's brilliant. You know, he didn't think any of his stuff would work in a community larger than Geneva. And the founding fathers really understood this problem. They, under, they studied Rome really closely, and they built a structure that try to keep power at the most local level possible because that's where people live. And so I think the sources of meaning have to be, and, and belonging, right? It's not just meaning, it's belonging. This feeling that you'd be missed if you were gone. You can't get that in a country of 330 million people. Unless you're John McCain or John Updike or, you know, something like that. And to use somebody like 
Edmund Burke's terms, the little platoons, these civil institutions, these voluntary institutions like the church, like the community group, fraternal organizations, for right. lack of a better word. It's not necessarily fraternal in the sense that we'd use it today. There's no way for those to maybe function in a healthy way in a society this large, this interconnected. Am I getting you right? Yeah, no, that's right. And so what happens is, getting back to the romanticism, is that when there aren't these opportunities to have healthy outlets for feeling like you belong to something, where you're you're valued for your physical presence and the things that you were doing, you retreat to the quote-unquote national community, mm. which renders everybody you disagree with into an abstraction. And this is one of the reasons why I think Facebook is so friggin' evil, because what happens is things like Facebook and Twitter, they reward you, they reward asininity, first of all. People go to these virtual communities, which are not the same thing as real communities, to have their biases confirmed rather than challenged. Yes. I, mean, I don't do social media, but it seems to me that it's all about throwing something out there and assuming other people will validate. That's and, right. And, and, and see, at, at minimum, seeking that validation. Right. And so one of the things that happens is, you know, to use a really gross analogy, right? I stipulate that it's gross. In the 1930s, if you were a pedophile, it's really hard to get to know another pedophile, right? I mean, it's a hard conversation to start. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm into, yeah. you know, right? And so you were by nature atomized and excluded. And it was very difficult to fall in. it was in. good that you were excluded. Yes, it's very good. I'm, I'm picking something that I think most of us mm -hmm. can agree mm -hmm. deserves social stigma. One of the things that the internet does is it doesn't matter how crazy, weird, grotesque, you're bigoted your view is, you're about three mouse clicks away from finding validation for it. Mm -hmm. And there are well-documented steps in your brain that happen when your coalition instinct is triggered and all of a sudden you realize, I'm not alone. I don't like Jews or blacks or whoever, right? And you become, and this is the logic of populism, which I despise. Populism is very different than democracy. Populism is inherently anti-intellectual. There was only one populist movement I ever was sympathetic to. It was the Tea Parties. Well, but, but what about somebody like Christopher Lash, who who has a very intense and I would say articulate defense of populism? I love a lot of Christopher Lash's stuff. I would argue that a big chunk of what Christopher Lash's support, and it's been a while since I've read Lash, but a big chunk of his support for populism was sort of like, was first of all reflected his contempt for the elites, sure. which is very much the William F. Buckley thing about I would rather be governed by the first 500 names in the Boston phone book than the faculty of Harvard Law, right? And I'm sympathetic to that too. But part of Lash's attitude and part of the attitude of a lot of people that I think has kind of backfired on the right and is destined to backfire on the left as well is sort of like what the English kings, their attitude towards the Celts. Really useful to unleash them on your enemies, but you wouldn't want one of them on the throne. And populism as an expression of political passion has its moments and its uses. But left, I'm, I'm a big believer that all poisons are determined by the dose, right? Mm. So a little populism is okay. A little nationalism is essential to creating a sense of solidarity, to creating a sense of belongingness that there are many countries like mine, but mine is special, right? A certain amount of attachment. I love Thanksgiving. It's the most nationalist holiday. It's about a relate. It's a covenant with God and it's about soil, right? I mean, it's not, right. it's, I love Thanksgiving. There are no presents. There's no commercialism, but you take too much. So a, lit, a little nationalism, a little populism, it's like salt. It brings out the flavor in the meal. Brings it all, all the flavors together. A little too much, it ruins the flavor. Way too much, it's literally poisonous. Mm -hmm. I'm, again, because I'm not a, 
I'm not a monist. I think all things are bad taken to extremes. Elitism, bad taken so to So even extremes. to flesh out your argument, though, so a little bit of identity politics, useful, right? Yeah. A little a, bit is useful. A Too much? Song. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. And same for populism, yes. a little bit. Same for basically any ideology, even. Is Almost useful. any ideology. Almost yeah, any. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, within, within and how, how much Nazism you want, you know. <laughs> but yeah, right. no, but yes, but I think that's right, is that mm-hmm. A pinch of almost anyone is is fine or tolerable or manageable. And so you see populism and identity politics as monism. But I think there's something more that I remember from the book where you both you say that they're both built on resentment. Right. But isn't some resentment justified? I mean, wouldn't, isn't that the argument that both of those sides well, would make? Look, sure. Look, again, as I, I think I said earlier in the conversation, a little bit of ethnic politics mm. is fine and Totally natural. Like if you told – I've been making this point to conservatives for a very long time. If you had told the founding fathers that it would be a violation of American principles to send someone who speaks German to talk to the Germans in Pennsylvania, they would have laughed you out of the room. You know, I mean the sum of politics is about asking people for their vote, right? One of the purposes of this book that I'm trying to do is get back to this idea of persuasion, which is – Go back to Aristotle's, the essence, what is supposed to be the essence of politics and democracy. This idea that I can marshal facts and reason to explain to you why your interests are better served in my coalition than the other person's coalition. We are out of one of the reasons the Republican Party became the crap show that it became is because a lot of people on the right stopped caring about persuasion and started caring about purity. The more you care about purity, by definition, the more you're monistic, the more you're about one thingism. And so part of the, the, the thing about resentment that comes up is that populism historically is, you know, technically populism simply means peopleism, the mm-hmm. populi, the people. From the word populist. Right. Everywhere where populism is a thing, it manifests itself really as just some of the people. And when populism really goes off the rails is when it says that only the members of the crowd or the group that are calling themselves the populist, their morality, their arguments are all situational and contextual to them and that nothing that is inconvenient to them matters. That's why like William Jennings Bryan has this great line where he says, the people of Nebraska are for free silver, therefore I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later. That's the essence of tribalism, right? I mean, these people are part of my tribe and therefore I'm for it. That's right. Going back to your earlier argument that I mean, you could probably make a very similar argument with many of the ethnic identity activist crowd. I represent my group. Right. And if you disagree with me, you're against my whole group. Often people claim to speak for their entire group. And then, you know, there's not an acknowledgement often that they don't. I mean, I, I come from an ex-Mormon background, which is mm-hmm. a pretty select group of people. Sure. Um, I mean, you could narrow that down to not a very large group. Claiming that I represent that entire right. group gets me a certain degree of power. But is it really accurate? No, I think it's repugnant. I mean, I I get it as a matter of political rhetoric, right? Uh, We just went through, when we're recording this, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings, and you had all of these people who had a very specific political agenda claiming to speak for all women. That's falsifiable very quickly. The same way that Donald Trump constantly makes it sound like he's speaking for all Americans when he's really speaking for a, at best, plurality of not just a straight up minority of Americans, right? He's speaking for his base. The idea that if you walk into a room and you see someone has a different color skin than you do, that you therefore know everything you need to know about them is 
bigoted. You know, it's one of these classic conflict school, if we're going to use that mm-hmm. phrase, BS like arguments it. where racism is now meant to mean um, power relations between white people and minorities. I'm perfectly willing to give up the word racism and give it to them. Here, you know, here's your, you know, let me appease you and give you the word racism. We still need a word for the bigotry involved. Well, but wait a minute, though. I mean, remember in your book, you said something specifically, though, in reference, I think it was referencing somebody else, where you said, if we allow language to be very loose, then we've lost everything. If we allow words to not mean yeah. specific things. All right, that's fair. So, so Maybe I'll take I, it I back. Think, but yeah. you know, but, but my, only, my only point is, is that the conflict school can take mm-hmm. ownership of the word racism mm-hmm. and define it in this very academic, specialized way. It doesn't mean that if Sarah Zhang from the New York Times speaks about all white people as if they all agree on everything or that they all need to be eliminated, that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it good. I am entirely in favor of conceding the point that bigoted rhetoric about black people is worse than bigoted rhetoric about Dutch people or Mormon people or mm. whatever. But I mean, is that fair? I mean, isn't a bigoted re- rhetoric bigoted rhetoric? That's, that's hard to say. <laughs> Two times fast. My point is, is that all bigoted rhetoric is bad, but some bigoted rhetoric can be worse than other bigoted rhetoric. Like if you say certain things about Jews, it conjures a specific mm. history that Missouri Synod Protestants don't have, right? And and it can be particularly offensive. You know, guys on the alt-right make would make jokes on Twitter about my dead brother being turned into soap, okay? Um, That is more offensive than making bigoted comments about a non-Jew being turned into soap simply well, because so, but, but it still goes back to the context. I mean, it's like George Carlin's take on political correctness, isn't it? It's all specific to the context. That's right. And, and I, so, all, all I'm saying, I'm willing to concede that anti-black racism is a much more f- significant and pernicious phenomenon and troublesome, uh, problematic phenomenon in American history than other forms of bigotry. What drives me crazy about the conflict school argument is that you're allowed to say any crappy thing you want about white people or white men the pale penis people or whatever it is. And that should be celebrated. That's speaking truth to power. To me, it's just a form of identity politics. It may not be as evil or as bad using the N-word about somebody, but it doesn't mean it's good. And it's corrosive to the body politic. I mean, how much of this relates to the rise of Trump? You know, I mean, this idea, going back to what you just said, that poor white male who has no college education whatsoever and is unemployed, per se, by his very nature, according to these arguments, is more privileged than the wealthiest... Than Barack Obama's daughters. Barack Obama's daughters. (laughs) Let's use that as an example. No matter what. I mean, how much of that fed the rise of Trump? And is there a way for people of all sides to try and get out of this just vicious, corrosive, my my side has more of a a beef and more legitimate resentment than yours? I I will invoke a very prominent progressive academic, Sherry Berman. She wrote a wonderful piece. I don't know if this podcast will have show notes for The Guardian um, a couple weeks ago. You can find it about how calling people racist, emphasizing racial differences has the tendency of making people more racist. The rhetoric that has come out of a lot of the left over the last 30 years, and not just the hard left, academic left, but also, you know, political consultants and politicians about how we're all supposed to celebrate white people will be a minority, right? This This demographic transition will be a majority 
majority minority country, which doesn't terrify me personally, but watch MSNBC for a month. You will find plenty of examples of people saying how wonderful it's going to be when white people are no longer privileged, when white people's white traditions are no longer dominant, when white this, white that, you know, when they go by the wayside. That kind of rhetoric triggers people, triggers their coalition instinct to think of themselves as white. And to um, protect their interests. And to protect that. their interests as they see it. And, and because really the worst people in our politics are the people who are talking about white interests. They're the only ones who are going to be listened to. And so you get this thing where, and the, the data on this is pretty settled, is that the people who saw being white as essential to their identity, their one thingism were wildly disproportionately more likely to vote for Donald Trump. Donald Trump triggered a lot of that in our electorate. And and what triggers that stuff is things like whiteness studies, right? All this loose talk about white supremacy, all this stuff on Twitter and other places where, yes, all white people are racist. When you talk about white people, like, I mean, I grew up, the idea that I saw myself primarily as a white person, you know, I'd, the idea that I would ever begin a sentence as a white person, mm-hmm. I think, and whenever I make this point to a lot of left-wingers, they'll say, well, well that's I mean, because that's part of your privilege. Well, here, and this is actually relates to a lot of the work I'm doing as a scholar. The idea that you can refer to white culture as one thing is, insane. is incredibly offensive, actually, yeah. and, and a w- whitewashing, to use an right. appropriate word. The idea that Jews, Italians, Irish were considered white when they first came here is mm. just ahistorical, right? And that only people of color, quote-unquote, have, re- have received some kind of uh, maltreatment and that there wasn't conflict in between all of those groups. That's right. All of that has been washed away. But is there a path, though, a way to to try and pacify these kind of conflicts, to try and come back to the vital center? Is there a way? Well, what I'm trying to do, and I get no credit for it from the left, and I get an enormous amount of grief from it from parts of the right, is actually to put away a lot of the silliness that has taken over parts of the sort of the shout show right and actually try to make arguments people on their own terms on the other side. I'm a big fan of the British political philosopher Michael Oakeshott and he thinks all politics is supposed to be a conversation. And I think the more we can encourage this notion of conversation, which is not lecturing, which is not shouting, it is this iterative, interactive thing where the best conversations involve both listening and talking and going organically where they'd lead you. It's what democracy is based on. If you go back to Tocqueville, it's what civilization is based on. And it's in short supply. And I think one of the, I mean, just to focus on one upside, one of the great things about this golden dawn of podcasts is I think an enormous number of people are retreating from the nastiness and the vitriol and the shouting that takes place cable news. on cable news and on talk radio, wants to actually to hear conversations or at least hear arguments that lay something out. And um, I think that is a really healthy sign. It's a small part of it. But I, I've i always argued that the fight for liberty is a door-to-door fight. It ha- starts in your own backyard and it's always going to be about baby steps. And if there's one theme in the book that informs all of it is that Every generation has to do it because we are only one generation from going back in the jungle where the identity politics of the tribe was all there was. Jonah Goldberg, thanks for being part of this conversation. You've been quite a mensch. It was fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Production by Duncan Minch and Ty Fishkin. Special thanks to Nakai Salcido and a great many thanks to Paul Carice for making this project possible. Please check back next week for my interview with Mark Lilla. If you'd like to check out our courses or programs, please go to scetl at asu.edu. Thanks for listening.